I am grateful to the Lord and what he has been doing in the life of our church in the last few months, especially, and uh, the culmination of that in this last week to call Pastor John as pastor. And I uh, just want to encourage you to receive his ministry, to profit from uh, fellowshipping with him and Jen, their family. And certainly, as you have opportunity, as they're able, I know with a new little one, it's not always possible to do everything they'd like to do, but uh, show hospitality to them and receive them, get to know them. This is uh, an opportunity to receive graciously the gift that the Lord has given to us. And I'm just so thankful for how the Lord has led our church family. And uh, he's been here, but there's transition here that's appropriate. And I just appreciate his patience in the process. Uh, I think uh, for the sake of our church family uh, process that we want to go through anytime we're pursuing someone to lead uh, in our assembly, uh, we want to make sure that they certainly fulfill the biblical qualifications and uh, that really we're all uh, agreed together. This is the direction the Lord's leading us. So I just wanted to share that with you, encourage you along those lines. And uh, I I hope over time to change the, the focus to the message this morning, I hope over time that our focus when we come to the Lord's table uh, we, we realize that we're looking at uh, doing something a little bit different in our service in terms of our focus because of what we're doing. Uh, there's some churches that have the Lord's table once every three months. Uh, there's some churches that have the Lord's table every week. Uh, our purpose uh, is, at least in, in my way of thinking, is we don't want it so common that it's not special, but so infrequent that it's also not more common to us to be coming to a place where we're looking at the Lord, looking what he's done for us, and uh, considering um, the salvation that we have and just making sure that we're anticipating his coming, but also are remaining in right relationship with him. The subject of uh, the, the messages on Sundays usually when we observe the Lord's table, has to do with the doctrine of salvation, uh, broadly speaking. And then we have taken time over uh, the years to consider different aspects of salvation. Uh, reconciliation is uh, the current focus. And within the subject of reconciliation, of course, reconciliation with God. Uh, but then by extension, reconciliation with one another. And as we've begun to study the subject of reconciliation with God, uh, we noted in the last time that we considered First um, John chapter 1 and verse 9, that there's to be an ongoing confession in our lives of sin to God. And even though we would say God has forgiven us, there's that ongoing relationship that we have with God as our father, and we made a distinction between parental forgiveness and judicial forgiveness. We're forgiven for our sins when we come to Christ for salvation. God no longer judges us on the basis of our sin in terms of our eternal life. He has forgiven us completely. We are justified. We stand in a position of grace, and we're, we're declared righteous before God, but then there's just the matter of regular 
maintaining fellowship with him as our father. And Jesus, of course, taught us to pray in uh, the disciples' prayer or the Lord's prayer, forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses. And so this is something that is to be ongoing. It is to be even daily. If uh, we are to pray for daily bread, we also pray for forgiveness daily. We certainly sin daily. And then in addition to that, we also pray that God would not lead us into temptation, that we don't want to pursue the sin that we have been forgiven of. Forgive us our debts, even as we forgive those who have become indebted to us or those who've transgressed against us. We're asking for forgiveness. We are practicing forgiveness. And as we consider this matter of confession and forgiveness as a part of reconciliation, that is a part of the consideration as well, that as we pray and we confess our sins, we're also thinking about our relationship with one another. I want to just take a little bit more time to think about confession specifically, but then get into really this relationship that we have with one another as believers and uh, certainly recognize that our practice of forgiveness is related to, it's certainly modeled after God's forgiveness of us. And based upon Jesus' teaching, it is linked, our forgiveness of others is linked to God's forgiving us. And I trust the Lord will will teach us, instruct us. This is really an important subject. Uh, it is important for the life of our church. It's important for Christian friendships. It's important for Christian families that there be a maintaining of a right relationship with one another. Uh, Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13, if you turn there. As we renew our mind on confession and forgiveness, this is one of the verses that I think is helpful to have in mind. The scripture says in verse 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. I don't think it's... Uh, without reason that the next verse is right afterwards, this, this teaching, verse 14, how blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. In verse 13, he's talking about not prospering. In verse 14, he's talking about calamity and the person who conceals their sin hardens themselves against the conviction of God. There's, somebody put it this way, there's payday someday. There are going to be consequences. But fearing God means confessing those sins and forsaking those sins, because if those sins are present in the life, they invite, certainly, the judgment of God. 
and uh, you could say the, the discipline of God for believers. Because God, while we might not like to use the word punishment, God does judge believers. And as he judges believers, uh, he disciplines them with things like 1 Corinthians 11, sickness, weakness, even death. God disciplines his church. He disciplines his people. That word that is translated confess is also translated in other places, give thanks. The element, if you were to look at the circumstances of the times where it's translated give thanks, in both cases, there's an acknowledgement of reality. When you give thanks, you're recognizing God for what he has done. When you confess, you're recognizing the truth. It's agreeing with God. It's recognizing the truth. In the Greek, the word that is used for confession is homologeo. It means to say the same thing. It comes to, it's, it's an agreement. Uh, even in uh, secular Greek, ancient Greek, the word, the noun version of the word was used for a business agreement or kind of a covenant where people came to terms with one another. If someone subscribes to a theological confession, they are agreeing to that. So that's their confession. They're saying, this is what I agree with. And hopefully that confession agrees with what the scripture teaches. So if we're talking about confessing and forsaking transgressions, this is agreeing or admitting that a person has done what is wrong in the sight of God based upon the teaching of God's word. God has specified and told us what sin is. Confession is coming to the place where I agree with God and I confess that, yes, that is a sin, what I have done. Someone described it this way, confession is an acknowledgement on our part that we agree with God and what he has said about our sin in his word. We stand on his side the side of the one offended, and acknowledge that he is right in holding us guilty of an offense. Confession is the formal acknowledgement of the fact. It involves a personal, on-the-record admission of guilt. And I'm not saying that's public, because as we confess our sins, what does the Scripture say? We are to confess our sins to God. Another person described it, the same author actually described confession as pleading guilty to the charges made by conscience. And we could say conscience that is confirmed by the word of God as sin. The word of God says it. I recognize that I have broken that commandment. I'm pleading guilty. I'm saying I have sinned. That's what David said to Nathan when Nathan came and confronted him about his killing of Uriah, his sin with Bathsheba, told that story. And when Nathan got to the end of it and Nathan said, you're the man, then David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have transgressed, broken God's commandment. He's acknowledging his own guilt. And what does the scripture say here? He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. David was worthy of death. And yet, as he confessed his sin, God not only did not give him death, he let him remain as king. But were there consequences? 
Sometimes we think in terms of forgiveness as there are no more consequences. We like it when there's no consequences to something that we've done that is really bad or wrong. But God does not promise when someone is forgiven that there will be no consequences. In fact, with regard to David, he said, because by this deed you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And if you remember the sword, he said, will never depart from your house because of what you've done. And he lost other sons because of what took place. David had killed, unjustly taken life. And God's response of discipline was, of course, to take the life of that child that was born of Bathsheba, first of all. And beyond that, Absalom. Amnon. Sobering that his life was then characterized by the discipline of the Lord. But God did forgive. And praise the Lord that he is a God of compassion. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. God is a God of compassion. He does forgive. doesn't hold that against you. The consequences that come are, they come because of God's standard of absolute righteousness, of his justice, in that case, his own reputation connected with David. They also come as a means of discipline, of the seriousness, to help a person realize the seriousness of sin. So sometimes we have to live with the consequences of what we've done, we've done and that itself is the teacher to not sin in that way again. So I just ask you today, as we continue to consider this matter of confession, is there something that's standing in the way of your confessing your sin? Are you praying daily, forgive us our debts, forgive me my debts, forgive me for my sins? Are you praying that way? Are you walking in fellowship with the Lord? Or because of arrogance and pride, Are you refusing to acknowledge that you're guilty? Is there stubbornness that's standing in the way? Are you making excuses for what you did? Are you you rationalizing away your guilt? Are you blaming others for the sin that you yourself committed? And others may have committed sin and may have been part of the bigger picture, but it doesn't justify your committing the sin. And I think as the scripture reminder uh, that's given here would encourage us, there will be compassion when you come and confess that sin to God. The text says, he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. In Old Testament Israel, if someone was to confess their sin, how would they do it? If you read through the Psalms, you can see the psalmist confessing sin. But if you were to see in Old Testament Israel what that looked like in terms of the tabernacle, they would bring a sin offering or a guilt offering to the tabernacle. They would place, as they interacted there with the priest at the entrance, they would take their animal, bring it to the altar, place their hands on the head of that animal. And if it's consistent with what the high priest did for all of Israel, they would confess their sin over the head of that animal. And then that animal's throat would be slit. 
the blood would be poured and the priest would go through the procedure of the sacrifice. They would be learning by that, that their sin was costly, that it cost, excuse me, it, it had an effect uh, upon, as they put the, their hands on the head of that animal, it had an effect upon an innocent creature. And of course, that was foreshadowing ultimately the Lamb of God who would come and bear their sins, but it was a picture. And their confession of sin took place right there. Did the priest know everything that the person did? Well, perhaps the priest, in order to uh, make sure that the right offering was given, would become aware of what was taking place. But I think you could say the Old Testament is consistent with the New Testament in terms of sin being confessed to God. The priest would have represented God at the tabernacle, the Israelite tabernacle in the Old Testament, but in terms of the confession of sin, that was to be made to God. I don't know if that's ever a question from your standpoint. Maybe you think, well, of course, we're supposed to confess our sins to God. But do you know anybody who thinks that they need to confess their sin to another person? For instance, not a priest of Israel, but somebody who calls themselves a priest? Does someone have to hear my sins? Can sins be confessed to an angel or a saint or something like that? And I think we need to remember that Jesus in his teaching in Matthew chapter 6, Luke chapter 11, confession and a request for forgiveness was to be made directly to the Father. Now, he taught his disciples to come in his name, to come in Jesus' name. Why? Because there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. We come in Jesus' name, but we can speak directly to the Father, and we can make known and confess, and of course, he knows them already, but we confess our sins to him. There are many many biblical examples in addition to the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Daniel chapter 9, as the speaker or the writer is speaking about their sin, and they're speaking directly to the God of heaven. David says it in Psalm 32, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. You might say, well, what about Nathan the prophet? Well, Nathan the prophet came to David because David was not confessing his sin. David was going on, and he describes in Psalm 32 the consternation, the difficulty he had in his life, even the physical distress, the emotional distress, because he was not dealing with his sin. And he says, finally, he did acknowledge his sin to the Lord. And he says, how blessed is the person who does. There's blessing awaiting a person who comes to the Lord. You think it's negative. No, well, you've got to confess that sin and acknowledge it before the Lord. But when you know the forgiveness of God and you know that there's no longer any barrier between your soul and the Savior, there's nothing that's going to keep you from praying to God. Your prayers won't any longer bounce off the the walls or the ceiling before they even get up to heaven. You understand I was speaking in a figure of speech. God always hears, but we need to confess our sins. 
do I need to confess my sins to other people as a part of confessing my sins to God? If you turn over to James chapter 5, it's an important passage and important to understand what James is saying when he gives direction to believers. James chapter 5, verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful that he is to sing praises? Is anyone among you sick? Or the word could be weak. Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. In the context of seeking help, in the case of this one who is sick or weak, they're going to the elders of the church. Prayer is offered on their behalf. They have not necessarily committed sins. End of verse 15, it says, if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. It doesn't say that he necessarily has. So somebody could be in a position of sickness or weakness, and it not be due to their sin. We know from 1 Corinthians 11, they could be in a position of sickness or weakness, and it could be. It just depends on what's going on in the person's life. But then James gives this direction, therefore, confess your sins to, notice what he says here, one another. He does not say to the church. The difference would be a public confession of sin. Now, there are times where someone's sin has to be dealt with on a public level because of the kind of sin that it is. But what he says here is confess your sins to one another. And then what's the goal of that? Obviously, look at the rest of the verse. And pray for one another so that you may be healed. This is confessing your sin to someone else. Someone described it as mutual confession on a one-to-one basis within the circle of believers. What would the purpose be? To gain someone to pray for you. Obviously, through this, there is accountability as you confess your sin to another person. That accountability, that prayer, likely godly counsel is a way in which God heals a person. He strengthens them so that they can overcome the sin that's taking place or has taken place in their life. End of the verse says the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So prayers for another's sanctification is the context in which he says that. And what's the illustration? Well, Elijah prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. That's how powerful prayer is because it gets hold of God and God answers and God can obviously keep the rain from falling and he can make it rain. And that's James' illustration there for the power of prayer, but it's applied to our sanctification. So what James is saying here, and by the way, he's, he says to one another, and while elders in verse 14 are the, in the context, he doesn't limit it to elders when he says in verse 16, confess your sins. So this is not necessarily to church leadership. This isn't necessarily to a pastor 
or someone else who holds an office. This is to a fellow believer. Again, mutual confession, as someone said, on a one-to-one basis within the circle of believers. Now, is it possible that in verse 16, you could be talking about two people who have sinned against one another? Yes. Could they be discussing sins that they committed against one another and coming to a place of reconciliation? Yes. But it doesn't say that. That's a possibility. This is actually a broader discussion than that. It says confess your sins, plural. Doesn't mean that this is necessarily a sin that I committed against the person that I'm confessing it to. It could be, but there are more scriptures that would give us direction regarding that kind of confession. And let's think about that a little bit. Confession is to be made to God. We come to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. We don't come in order to gain or regain justification. We have been justified. We're seeking to maintain right relationships with God. There are times where we may confess sins to one another, perhaps for the possibility of reconciliation. Perhaps it is just that I need to grow and I'm weak and I need help. And so I go to another believer and I ask them, would you pray for me? And I may receive godly counsel. But what if I sin directly against someone else? And even here, we have to be careful. There are what the scriptures would define as heart sins. Sins that take place in the heart that never get enacted. There are evil thoughts, Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. Uh, Isaiah 55, verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man, his thoughts. So they're unrighteous, they're wicked thoughts. There are thoughts that a person can think, and the sin is taking place in the heart. And if that sin is taking place in the heart, and I'll just list some other possibilities. Bitterness, resentment, anger, self-pity, jealousy, envy, sinful doubt, lust. Those are all sins of the heart. They may have an expression in life in terms of other relationships. But if someone, for instance, is bitter at another person, and that's something they're holding in their heart, do they necessarily need to go and tell the person that they're bitter at? Well, the question is, have they manifested that bitterness in ways that show the other person? Have they lashed out in sinful anger? Well, you could say that the anger and the lashing out and the words that are spoken are part of that, but then the inner heart of bitterness that's leading to that is that's a sin that needs to be confessed to God. Those outward things need to be confessed, and likely if someone is lashing out in anger because of inner bitterness, then in a full, complete, godly discussion, the issue of that bitterness probably needs to be addressed as well. Why is there bitterness? What has taken place? What is the reason for the bitterness? Uh, But let's say it's lust, and someone lusts after another person. Is that to be confessed? Well, if that's taking place in the heart, and you don't even know the person, or even if you did know the person, but that's only taking place in the heart, then that's a sin that needs to be confessed to God. If that lust starts to 
unfold and that person starts to pursue an inappropriate relationship with another person and they start to act in ways and do things that show inordinate attention based upon that lust, then yeah, there's some things that should be dealt with because of the outward manifestation. Whenever we sin, we always sin against God. We always sin in our hearts. But when the sin starts to erupt and come out of our lives and then invade our relationships, then we have more issues. We have to start to deal with those relationships, especially if we've acted or said or done something. So we have to be careful that it's not just a heart sin. If it's a heart sin, that does need to be dealt with. And it's a serious sin. Remember what Jesus said? If a man lusts after a woman in his heart, it's like committing adultery. He's committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so that has to be dealt with. And it's a serious sin. Jesus taught that. But what if it makes its way into that social sphere? What if I have done something against someone? What if I have said something or done something where I've sinned against someone? Let's turn over, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5, speaking of Jesus' teaching. Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 23. He's just been talking about the commandment, you shall not commit murder. And he applies that to not only the act of murder, but certainly speech that would seek to harm. Verse 23, therefore, he says, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Okay, so in the context here, it's worship. This is Old Testament worship. This is going to the altar of offering. You have your sacrifice there, but right in the act of serving God and offering an offering, you recognize that my brother or sister has something against me. And that's the wording. We can talk a little bit about the wording there, but I, it says there remembers. So you're actually in the act of worship that you remember there's an issue between you and someone else. What is Jesus' direction? He says, leave your offering there before the altar and go. Being right with your brother or sister is more important at this moment than worship. In fact, we would say it's a part of worship if I'm going to obey God. This is actually acknowledging that God is the one who gives commandments, not only as he said to love your neighbor, love, love uh, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but love your neighbor. And then certainly here he's describing brother. And notice what he says. He says, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now, you might stop there, but I, Jesus doesn't stop there. As he gives further warning, he says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law 
while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you paid up the last cent. His point is there is judgment coming if you don't do that, if you don't pursue that right relationship. There's discipline coming. The discipline of a judge. So yes, even suspending an act of worship. Yes, if you're not right with someone else, even not participating in the Lord's table. It's more important that you get right with your brother or sister in Christ. It's so important that we be right with one another if we're going to be right with God, if we're going to truly worship God. Be angry, Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 26, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Don't go another day if that's the issue. And the problem is that when you give the devil an opportunity, he will take it. And you go another day and what happens? Your heart gets hardened and it gets hardened. And it gets hardened, and you're certainly not obeying the, 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 the command to pursue peace with all men. Instead, you're existing in a state of disobedience and a state of disharmony, and that's not true worship. So have you sinned against someone? Now, the, the wording here as Jesus uses... The, the phrase has something against you, verse 23. There is a debate about that particular word as if it is something that is justified or something that's not justified. In other words, if somebody has something against you and it's not really a biblical or a sin issue, is this something that I have to go take care of? And I, like I said, there's some debate about that, but really we don't, we don't even want, do we, misunderstanding to keep us from having a right relationship with one another? But sometimes that's what the issue is. It's misunderstanding. It's not necessarily sin. It's just that there's not right relationship because there's some, been some misunderstanding. It may not be that that person, that I've sinned against that person, but I want to make sure. Sometimes we find ourselves in that position. And I just want to encourage all of us to pursue, as the writer of Hebrews says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We want to have harmonious relationships, right relationships, good relationships. There are, of course, many ways we avoid confessing our sin others. Even sometimes we go to somebody and we we just say, I'm sorry. I'm sad about what happened. Or we just say, I apologize. We're not really seeking forgiveness, but we just say, I apologize. And then we make up an excuse as to why we did what we did. We don't actually confess that we did wrong. We don't actually ask for forgiveness. We don't name the sin. We don't humble ourselves to acknowledge the thing that we did that was an offense towards the other person. And sometimes what we do is we substitute kindness or attempt to return to our normal state of communicating with that person that I have offended 
and hope that they will just do the same thing. In other words, we just kind of like, that never happened. We just keep on talking to them. And what we omit is the fact that we sinned against them. We just sort of skip over the fact that we became angry and said unkind words, or sometimes we wallow in self-pity and give excuses as to why we behave the way that we did. We don't actually deal with the sin. I just want to encourage you, if you've sinned against someone, and you know it, you know they have something against you, Scripture says go. Don't even, don't even continue in your practice of worshiping God before you deal with that issue. Now, if you go and you want to deal with that with someone else, uh, turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. You know the story of the prodigal son? The younger son left home, wasted his inheritance. But in verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with my hunger. Notice this, verse 18. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him. Where is this taking place? This is taking place in the pig pen which is where we find ourselves, right? If we've sinned against the Lord. In this case, it's a literal pig pen. He's eating what the pigs are eating, but he comes to his senses and then God has gotten a hold of his heart because when he goes, he's actually thinking about what he's going to say. Look at what he says. Verse 18, we'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight or before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And just the point that I would make with regard to what is happening here, I think this is a picture of true repentance. And he is recognizing that he has sinned against heaven, against God. That's a euphemism for God here. And then against his father. And if he sinned against his father by wasting his inheritance, by dishonoring his father, by doing what he's done, then he needs to go back and talk to his father. And he's thinking about what he's going to do before he ever does it. I think there's just a principle here of thinking ahead of time what you're going to do. And obviously dealing with your heart before God, speaking to God. Right, praying for God's forgiveness, but then making sure that you go and talk to the other person. And as you see his confession here, it's just a simple one. And that's a good confession, simple, straight to the point, honest, not trying to hide anything. I think if you multiply words, someone has said, if you're not careful, you can actually start to say things in the course of your confession that cloud the confession with excuses as to why you did what you did. He has no excuses, this passage, but sometimes we do that. 
Proverbs 10, 19 says, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. And sometimes when sin has been our way of living for a while, we may tend, and especially if we've offended someone else or there's, there's mutual sin, there's temptation for our emotions to get involved, and then we start to get in conflict in the very act of trying to get right. He's not justifying his sin. He's not excusing his sin. He's owning his sin. He's taking responsibility. And I think based on his attitude, you see something of his attitude in verse 17. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. And when he says what he says, verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He was willing to take a lesser position as a servant in his father's household because he'd been humble. He'd humbled himself. So his attitude is one of humility. And that's the right attitude to have when we come and confess our sin. And could I say this? Regardless of what the other person might do, what other, regardless of what the other person has done, if I've sinned, I need to deal with my sin before God. Now, in a, in a godly relationship where there are two spirit-filled people, God is at work in both. Sometimes what happens is that one person, God gets a hold of their heart and they go to reconcile. And then in the process, if there's genuine humility and a repentant heart and a willingness to deal with things, then on the other side, sometimes God uses that to help the other person to see what they need to do as well. Well, what a wonderful thing when there is mutual confession of sin and there's reconciliation. Well, what should the heart of a godly person be when someone comes to confess and they're forsaking their sin? Well, you look at the father here, look at verse 20. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran, embraced him and kissed him. And then he says what he had planned to say, verse 21. And then there's grace given, verse 22. Quickly bring out the best, best robe, he says, and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come back to life again. He was lost and has been found, and, he, and they began to celebrate. So what is given? what is given is grace on the other side. Are you willing to give grace? Are you ready to pardon? Are you forgiving and ready to pardon when that comes your way? Turn to Mark chapter 11. We'll close with this text and pick up the next time. This is on the front of the bulletin today. Mark chapter 11. Verse 25. And this has to do with what if somebody has sinned against me? This is not just when I've sinned against someone else, but when someone has sinned against me. What should the attitude of my heart be? 
without fully getting into all the context, I do think there's a principle here with regard to relationships between God's people. Verse 25, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Psalm 86, verse 5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Now this is, and we've been talking about confession of sin and going to someone else, but we might be on the receiving end of the sin. And is it possible that the reason someone may not be coming to us is because they perceive that unwillingness to forgive, that resentment, the grudge? The bitterness, the anger. So what Jesus is teaching here is there's something that has to adjust in our spirit. There should be a readiness to grant forgiveness in the context of prayer. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. This is something that happens in the heart. There would still be the additional step of having conversation with that person so that then they can confess their sin. But the point, I believe, of verse 25 is forgiveness, a willingness to forgive, should already be present in the heart if our heart is right with God. But the forgiveness is a transaction that takes place. I I was reading this week considering the subject of forgiveness, and I read something I had not considered before. Jesus is praying on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Remember that? There are some who would say that, and I think this is the way I thought about it, is that Jesus on the cross there is forgiving those who are sinning against him. Right? I mean, it sounds like he's praying for forgiveness for the people who are doing what they're doing. But the reality is that those people who were doing what they were doing were not repentant. They were not turning from that sin. They were nailing him to the cross. They were calling for his death. And so he's not praying at that moment that God would immediately forgive their sins. He is praying that God would do that. But when did that take place? When did the Father forgive those who crucified Christ? Well, we're just getting into the book of Acts, but I think you could rightly say it's on the day of Pentecost when they repented. When they confessed their sin of having crucified their Messiah. That's when the transaction took place, but Jesus was asking for it. And of course, we have a God who is ready to forgive, but it's a matter of seeking him and asking for his forgiveness. That's when the transaction takes place. That takes place, of course, in salvation. And that's the truth about God. I love that verse in Psalm 86. It helps us to see that whenever we go to God, even today, if God has brought up something in your mind and heart, you've been convicted about something, realize that God is good. Psalm 86, verse 5, he says, For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive. He's ready. This is the kind of God that he is. This is the kind of people we need to be. 
ready to forgive so that when that person comes to me or in the expectation of a local church, when I go to that other person, if that person is being like God, then there will be, while sin may have been committed repeatedly, there's a readiness to forgive because there's an understanding of who God is and the grace of God. Now, you might have more questions. We didn't really even deal with what if my brother sins against me and how should I approach that? The scripture certainly gives guidance for that as well. I trust even what we've considered this morning, the Lord will make application in our hearts and will deal with what we need to deal with. Does this mean that in the case of observing the Lord's table today, if the Lord raised an issue in your heart and you're not right with somebody that you shouldn't partake? Yes. You might need counsel about that based on the circumstances because sometimes in the context of our relationships with one another, whether it's in our home or in the church, things get complex and we need some guidance and counsel. But we have to remember that as we observe the Lord's table, that this is, this is a time when we're coming and the scripture calls it communion. And we're communing with the Lord, but we're not doing this just at home. We're doing this together. And so there's a togetherness about this that reflects our unity in Christ. And if that's a reality, if that's a spiritual reality, our, our privilege and opportunity is to work that out in our lives as we maintain right relationships. And sometimes there just has to be reconciliation. It has to be going to somebody and saying, hey, I sinned against you and I need to ask your forgiveness. Would you forgive me? And if that heart is ready to forgive like God's, there will be, that'll be granted. If maybe your confession isn't dealing with it, everything, then maybe there's further discussion that needs to be had. But if there's a willingness on both sides to forgive and there's really a desire to reconcile, the word of God gives us plenty of guidance and wisdom. And we can be right with one another. We need to be. We need to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, pursue peace with all men, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And may the Lord help us to apply his truth to our hearts. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we bow. We give you thanks. We thank you that your word teaches us and guides us. Even in sensitive matters, when it comes to our relationships with one another, And even today, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in each heart to bring us to a place of humble obedience to you. We have considered your words, Lord Jesus, the words that you gave to your disciples as you taught them parable that you gave to teach many things, including repentance, forgiveness. And we've considered a proverb that 
couple of Proverbs that give us wisdom for life. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to apply the truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.